everyone should be fired. It just follows more general principles. So, um, <laughs> Today we have a very special guest. Those of you on Twitter definitely know who he is. He recently won a prize. I think it was the OBE, probably. <laughs> we have Dr. <laughs> Liam Bright, known as the great canceller of philosophical careers, here to enlighten us about logical positivism. We're really excited about this episode because I believe the four of us, even though we come from you know different backgrounds, have experience with the critical theory, especially the Frankfurt School. And often positivism is usually, you know, rejected, out of hand, and probably caricatured. So we wanted to bring someone on to help us understand what are the arguments, what is the history, what are the problems that, you know, this uh, way of thinking was supposed to solve. And so I'm kind of interested in two sort of general ways the conversation could go. One, I'd like to understand more about the, the history around logical positivism. And two, around this methodology, how what, what it understands science to be and how this is supposed to be helpful, not just for the project of knowledge, but for the projects of liberation, amelioration, and emancipation. But enough from me. Uh, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Bright. And my first question for you is, could you just say a little bit to our listeners about the historical context around logical positivism? Who were the, the main thinkers? And what was, what was the reason why this way of thinking arose? Um, hi, Will. Hi, Gil. Hi, Lil. That's a nice consonance. And hi, Owen, too. A little in-joke. <laughs> Listen to stuff. Um, so, hi, yeah, I'm here to... Uh, chew gum and destroy academic freedom and I'm all out of gum. So let's talk about the <laughs> logical positivists. Um, you asked about a historical context. And so primarily today, I think we're going to be talking about the Vienna Circle, although there were allied people. Um, and this is a group of intellectuals, um, philosophers and scientists and mathematicians for the most part, um, who regularly met in sort of interwar Vienna. And so the sort of salient features of that social context were that on the one hand, there's obviously there's the defeat of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in World War One and the subsequent end of the empire, the dissolution. And so Vienna has gone from being the the metropole of like a very large and historic empire to being the capital of quite a small country. And so there's been a huge social change in that regard. And obviously there's a lot of people coming back from the war and the economy's in trouble and so on. Another feature of the situation is um, that there had been recently, a lot of these people have backgrounds in, in physics and maths, and there were these kind of twin epochal events going on right now, which was the foundational crisis in mathematics, wherein there had been the discovery of contradictions or at least results which had thought to be proven but then sort of weren't seen to be proven, um, prompting a lot of thought and angsting about standards of proof and the foundations of mathematics in the late 19th and early 20th century. And the invention of the new logic, um, 
by Frager and then Russell and Whitehead had been come out of that. And then on the other hand, there'd been Einstein's work in physics, the, the new theory of relativity and that sort of changing how people understood the sciences of overturning work by Newton that had been taken to be really secure. So there's that kind of sort of intellectual background. And then finally, there's a kind of local, well, I say finally, there's millions of things going on, but like final thing I'm going to talk about is locally, there was um, what's called the Red Vienna moment, which was mm-hmm. while the country, Austria, was generally quite conservative, Vienna had a very strong um, socialist movement, um, influenced a lot by what's called Austro-Marxism, which was a a particular form of uh, socialist governance, which was which was winning elections there all the time, and which had sort of grand ideals about sort of um, collective planning for a better society. And the Vienna Circle were reacting to, to all of these things, and so the the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and World War One had sort of prompted a sort of general cultural. We need to do things totally differently. You know, now is the time for a new era, sort of modernism, sort of the 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 birth of a sort of a real openness to very radically new ways of doing things because the old way had led to sort of total disaster. Um, and in fact, Carnap's first ever publication was directly a response to to World War One and the loss of the Central European powers. So I'll talk more about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the scientific results. Now, since these people had training in the sciences, they were often directly responding to that. It's what they thought about for a living. It's what they were very interested in. And then there was the context of Red Vienna, where um, the logical positivists, uh, the Vienna Circle, um, many of them, at least not all of them, but many of them really thought that what they were doing was going to sort of like part of the socialist revival, part of this new project of collective emancipation, which was taking part there. Mm. And so that's that's the kind of background to all this. What I find interesting is the way that you presented it. You know, this you know, approach to resolving the you know the problem of knowledge was not thought to be completely severed from political issues and political problems. And so what is is this like an envisioning a new role for science? Is that what you you see is going on? Yes. So um so there's actually a thing called the Manifesto of the Vienna Circle, which I think everyone here has actually read before this. And in that manifesto, three members of the circle, um, Hans Hahn, Otto Neurath, and uh, Rudolf Carnap, um, put forward a sort of vision of what they were doing as a group. And it was meant to be sort of their making, declaring themselves publicly as a sort of organized unit. And in that manifesto, they make it pretty clear that they they think that this new way of approaching knowledge, which I guess we'll have to talk about the specifics of what they believed, but the new way of approaching knowledge that they, they embodied, they championed, was connected to the social struggles of their time. And in particular, what they thought was that the sort of, the, the no-nonsense um, empiricism, the kind of quite strict adherence to what could be verified what could be shown to be true by intersubjectively accessible empirical methods that oh you know i do a lot of hand gestures while i podcast and it's totally useless but audience if you yes. could see it would really help you get the emphasis um yeah try to imagine he's gesticulating wildly yes, Can't yes. Confirm. it's incredible yeah. everywhere i i don't like to brag but i'm kind of a big deal um so like this is uh for them what they think they're up to is this new way of understand knowledge it's going to sort of clear away many of the ideological delusions which have been allowed to fester and which deceive people and they they also kind of connect this sort of down-to-earth empiricist view they see this as just a sort of what 
Marx materialism was always trying to say, um, but never quite managed to say it until luckily they've come along to do it right. But they, 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 they sort of saw it as like the, if you're sort of working in a down to earth way, they just thought that like, what will happen is you're forced to engage with like, what can I actually experience? What can I, what effects can I introduce by my actions? What what changes when I do things? And it's sort of the, the metaphysical um, stuff they thought that sort of that fades away. It's not what happens when you're concretely engaging with the world. And so in some ways they thought of themselves as sort of like stating theoretically what is the natural perspective of someone who's a proletariat, someone who's, whose way of engaging with the world is kind of, uh, well, engaging with it practically, like manipulating mm -hmm. it as part of their labour. For that reason, they, they saw themselves as kind of expressing the ethos of a proletariat, which was soon to, you know, take its part in the world stage. And also um, they thought of themselves as aiding the advance of that by clearing away ideological delusions and fostering the sharing of productive knowledge, which would help transform society and nature. That's what they thought they were doing. So this is very interesting to me as someone who was trained in this extremely uh, continental way, one of the sort of caricatures that this already helps uh, dispel, uh, I think, is the sort of uh, image that I, uh, is encouraged in a lot of continental circles of analytic philosophy as being uh, relatively apolitical and certainly not socialist, where in fact, as you're saying, right, like a number of these thinkers, and I was like shocked to see just how uh, explicit like Neurat is in this regard about his like, you know, intense commitment to Marxism and to socialist liberation in particular, and seeing this as continuous with, seeing their work as continuous with this uh, is, I think, extremely interesting. Yeah, I mean, so this, Neurat um, did some work in the Soviet Union for a while. He was helping run public information campaigns there. Um, and it, reportedly, he tried to persuade various officials he interacted with that they should drop the talk of materialism and really just embrace physicalism in the sense of logical empiricism, because that was that was the good thing. He didn't have much success. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like they, they really thought what they were doing was just a refinement of the Marxist tradition, and it was just like the next step. That's that's mm -hmm. where they were going. I, I will science. say, though, this... Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's just... Marxism is just... You know, it's an expression of scientific thinking and that what they're doing is refining scientific thinking. Now, I will say the, the, the point about analytic philosophy, it's important not to go too far with this. I mean, like, what happened with logical pop dates to sort of skip to the end of the story, eventually, you know, they're engaged in this kind of this culture war in Central Europe in the between the wars and they're on the socialist side, and rather famously, the socialists lose that war. Um, and <laughs> they were they were driven out um, of... Actually, one of them was murdered, and the rest were driven out. Um, Neurat actually has a really, really dramatic story of, like, literally jumping on the last boat out of a port in Holland. You know, it all went wrong. Um, and many of them, the bulk of the movement, went to the US. Um, and in the US, they were very much targeted by McCarthy. So you can still see the FBI files on Carnap and Philip Frank. Which is how business. you know you're doing it right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, if the FBI isn't looking into you, then are yeah. you then doing like? Then you're basically on, a CIA op. There's two options. <laughs> but, the, but, the issue, but the thing is, is that because of that, most people, not to be fair, Carnap, but most people just kind of backed away entirely from the political side. Because, yeah. I don't know, because they'd, they'd already lost one culture war and they were refugees in this new nation and they kind of most of them backed away and their students up with the exception of partner Whitney, but their students didn't take it up and so 
largely this element of the early analytic philosophy, it doesn't get transmitted. It, it's killed by the FBI, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. my God, you guys, this is explaining so much about American philosophy. I am so freaked out right now. <laughs> like yeah. it was, av- I mean, I knew, look, I knew in general that the left was purged from the academy had it ever existed there before. And then as I've pontificated about previously on the podcast, the entrance of the new left is all, uh, a different kind of kettle of fish into the academy. But I don't know. I just didn't know that there were these socialists that came over and that all of these people that the people I read in graduate school were like dissing all the time were actually like like on the on the left and they were had other social commitments to a socialist movement in Europe. Because when people talk about positivism in the U.S., they tend to brush it off like they kind of take the stance of, you know, Francophone theorists or people from the Frankfurt School who didn't agree with this approach, you know, they sort of dismiss it as a kind of crude or vulgar empiricism. And it's actually in the U.S. Academy, my impression is that it is sort of representative in a lot of people's minds of like a very conservative analytic approach. And the stuff that was critical of that from Europe that came over later and the continental tradition is seen as sort of like the more radical, socially engaged stuff. This is wild. I, you know, listening to this, it makes me think back to our Stuart Hall episode, you know, when he talks about we need to pay attention to the historical conditions under which um, a type of theorizing is generated. Mm-hmm. And this this makes um, positivism, it, it looks different when you realize that a lot of the critiques of positivism are, you know, um, uh, in the types of figures that we engage in is that, you know, as Lily said, vulgar empiricism, it simply affirms what is, it doesn't understand social mediation it simply just like presents the world you already knew what it was what else is there to say while you know the more continental traditions like we're going for depth we're going for you know what's deep that thing that can escape you know the the imperialism of language and all of that and it's wild that actually a way of thinking that has as its end clarity and also, I think it has as a sort of picture the idea that we have the capability to have a type of knowledge that will help us secure the means to the types of contingent or political ends that we desire that's built into that. That all of a sudden, you know, no, 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 we don't engage with that. You mm-hmm. have to you have to earn your depth. And so I wanted to ask you, well, how is logical positivism not simply you know, a, a brute and vulgar empiricism. You know, uh, I believe it, it is in, you know, the manifesto where, you know, there's this idea of a scientific conception of the world contains no depths. And I was wondering, could could you, like, explain oh, yeah, a little bit about that? Yeah, they do say they're not very deep. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, and <laughs> I believe you yourself, Liam, have said you're not a very deep person. And so, you know, should we just write you off? Like, I know mm-hmm. some deep philosophers, one whose uh, name begins with the letter H, ends in Heidegger. He's <laughs> all about that. And so, uh, you know, what would, you know, the logical positivist say to Heidegger? See, now, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Again, you, podcasters, you need to become patrons because if you become patrons, you get to see the video. And the way they're signaling <laughs> with their eyes is so clear they're setting me up here. Like, yeah. you're missing out. It's, it's like an alley oop. Like, yeah, yeah. Go yeah. So, for it. So, yeah. So, in response to this, so there's actually kind of good to both Lillian and Lillian and um, Will's um, question here. There's actually a bit of history. So, there was actually formal overtures from the Vienna Circle to the Frankfurt School 
to collaborate. Um, so that there was a few attempts at this, and it basically broke down for like totally petty personal reasons. I, I think very much on Horkheimer's part, and, and I, I to this day I don't really fully understand it. But so the logical uh, what's that petty petty personal grievance getting in the way of the community? <laughs> this is unheard of. <laughs> yeah, no, it, God. It, it, it never <laughs> happened. It's for the first and thankfully last time. Um, so. Yes. Um, <laughs> What yes, we've learned is... that from Twitter. Yes, as yeah. we know. But the <laughs> thing that strikes me about that, though, is that is that the the logical positivists actually strike me as way more politically attuned than those Frankfurt School thinkers. You know, Adorno was famously very dismissive of movements that were happening in his time, like the very dismissive of the student movement. Um, of you know, Marcuse tried to explain to him that there's some pretty dope stuff happening in the United States right now with like Angela Davis, and, and he just dismissed that as well. And um, so, yeah, I think that's worth noting. Yeah, Whereas no. Carnap's an active participant in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Carnap participated in the civil rights movement. Um, and so the last photo of him is actually him in a meeting where it's just amongst the hacktivists and, and him. And I once went to the Carnap archives, which are in Pittsburgh University, and it seems that towards the end of his life, he was, so there was a case at UCLA about Andrew Davis and her position in the school. Mm -hmm. And he was seen to be collecting notes with an eye to making a sympathetic case mm. for her, although he, he, he died, unfortunately. But like, um, or he never got around to him for some reason. But like, so yeah, Carnap was sort of actively involved with, with these things. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, the, the positivists reached out to the Frankfurt School because they thought like, well, we're both kind of groups trying to sort of understand society with an aim to lefty change of that society. Wouldn't we be natural allies? And I think what I've seen in the historical work on this is there's also the correspondence between um, Horkheimer and Adorno and some other people. And it's very clear that they were just, they, they wanted to, they invited the positivists to come speak to them in response to these overtures, but they were saying to themselves, this is only so we can work out what they say in order to publicly humiliate them. And then they, re <laughs> and then they refused wow. to publish Noraf's responses. And so, um, wow. it, I, it, it's one of, it seems to just be, they didn't, they thought they were like dweebs, which to be fair, they were dweebs. So, um, <laughs> that's fine. I stand yeah, dweebs. glass houses and <laughs> Really guys. But yeah, so like what, why did, yeah, why did they reject Depth and what's this? What's this Heidegger chap? Um, so uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's yeah. been making the rounds recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, he's um, not so hot on technology, so I hear. But like, um, <laughs> so the logical positives when they said sort of everything is surface, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are no depths. What they had in mind was a certain kind of resistance to um, claims. Maybe it's worth saying a bit about what they believe in general. So. Logical positivists, sort of, one of the most famous doctrines associated with them is this idea of verificationism, where verificationism says broadly that the, the meaningful claims, the meaningful utterances, in the sense of the utterances which can be either true or false, are ones which are, in principle, open to empirical verification. What does empirical verification mean? Well, it turns out they argued about that a lot and never really came to one thing, but sort of, broadly speaking, it's the sort of thing which you could gather evidence for somehow you could make observations it'd be sort of evidence you could you could share with others and if they were in the same situation as you they would have make the same kind of observations and be similarly so confirmed and they were really really hostile to claims to any kinds of knowledge which wouldn't operate in that way which would be deep in the sense of not 
available to that kind of intersubjective confirmation. They thought that that would compromise. There were sort of theoretical reasons. They thought it would compromise the objectivity of science because objectivity for them consisted in a certain kind of intersubjective accessibility in principle. Um, Do you mean claims like nothing itself, nothings? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So that they thought such claims, although weirdly that actually... They thought that claim was just malformed. They thought like yeah. that's, they thought that didn't even make it syntactically, let alone. Um, but, um, <laughs> it didn't even so clear what, the syntactic like, bar. It wasn't even the sentence. We're stuck yeah. on the grammar, guys. They needed. Heidegger needed an editor. Yeah, um, but but more than that, they also thought it was deceptive, politically suspicious. They thought mm. that uh, so Carnap. He's got this famous essay, Eliminating Metaphysics Through the Logical Analysis of Language, where he goes in on Heidegger for that um, nothing itself, nothing claims. And um, most of the uh, most of the essay is just a sort of a technical analysis of why he thinks this is sort of has the surface form of a meaningful sentence, but actually fails to really say anything. But more he at the end, there's this final section where he talks about what he thinks is really going on in metaphysics. And he thinks the real problem with statements like that is they sort of, they, they're used to bamboozle people. And there's a lecture, which hasn't, unfortunately was never written up, but we have lecture notes, we have Carnap's lecture notes from it, where he explains that um, he thinks that while metaphysics, metaphysical statements like the nothing itself nothings, they don't have semantic meaning. They're not the kind of things which can be true or false, but they do have predictable psychosocial effects. And mm-hmm. what they can be used for is that they, they seem to be making claims which are established by this, by the depth of thought or the sort of brilliant insight of great thinkers who you, you know, the fact that you can't check it isn't reason for you to doubt it. It's, you know, it's still still something you should accept. They're just more profound than you. And there's, you know, and, and from this sort of metaphysics are built up, which then end up justifying social orders or making actions seem mandatory or forbidden or so on. And, you know, this they just thought was socially aggressive. This this is a means of, like, holding people in ideological thrall and getting them to act against their own interests. And so, like, you know, the, the examples... The, you can think of an example which is only hinted at, but probably very similar to Carnap, is, you know, if if you say something like, um, I think, I, you know, I okay, I am very rich and I own... Um, I have a lot of interest in steel production. Um, I would like a monopoly on the resources which are used in steel production, but unfortunately, competitors backed by the British government currently have monopolies for those. So what I'd like everyone in Germany to do is um, kill the Brits so I get access to that, and then I'll be richer, and that would be nice for me. So, you know, here's a tin hat, here's a rifle, walk towards that machine gun. You know, that's probably not going to get many recruits, right? Like, but if you go and yeah. say, you know, the fatherland, um, your duty to the fatherland requires the ultimate sacrifice, uh, the honor mm-hmm. and glory of our nation and its fine civilization um, must be spread mm-hmm. for the good of all. Um, go forth and and give your very life, if needs be, for the Kaiser and all that's great in the world. Then you, you're sending, you know, Carnap's view mm-hmm. is like. The one which was stated plainly in terms of like, you know, material stuff, my interests with regard to it and my preferences regard to what you do, given that, that is honest, right? There was some statements of fact about how the world is. And then there was my statement, my preferences about what I would like in light of that. And then you could make your choice about if you want to put on a tin hat and walk towards the machine gun in light of that. Whereas the statement about, you know, our civilization, the glory of the fatherland, duty and honor, so on, that's just bamboozling. It just predictably, like, gives people has like an effect on them as if they're sort of being 
um, enticed. And so for that reason, they just thought like, you know, that's anti-democratic, it's, it's deceptive. And so Carnap famously says that he thinks music, uh, metaphysicians are musicians without musical talent. And that's what he thinks is going on. That there. So, is ooh. a yeah. great line. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> By the way, this reminded me. Um, it, so I'm glad you you reiterated this because this is something that you uh, said in uh, the brief correspondence that we had, and it reminded me so much of Spinoza in the appendix to Part One of the Ethics, which. Althusser, by the way, once called like the matrix of every possible ideology critique. <laughs> and there Spinoza says uh, that like all of these sort of metaphysical claims about in particular in his time in the, the, the critiques that he's launching about like the will of God and this anthropocentric divinity uh, and then like humanity made in God's image is just a means of spreading this kind of mystification. And it's uh, deployed in the service of, yeah, getting people to fight against their own interests as though it were their liberation and it yeah. critiquing these things as bad metaphysics takes away the basis for specifically political and social authorities that are otherwise understandable could otherwise be known understood as illegitimate no and I, and I think the key point there and this is one of the things that struck me in the readings that you sent is that those are not only politically pernicious those metaphysical ideas and abstractions are not only politically pernicious but really importantly they're actually epistemically meaningless right for the empiricalists they have no like national destiny right something yeah. a term that heidegger uses at the beginning of his 33 34 lectures right talking oh, about things huh. yeah yeah uh, talking about national destiny and it has to be fulfilled so you got some good imperatives there as well as a description yeah. of a state of affairs so I, I think the important point is that the the political point is not like an appendage or at least what stuck out to me right is that the political point is not a kind of appendage to um, other more what we might think of as more pure philosophical thinking but that there are political stakes even in just like the way that we do philosophy when we're not talking about anything political at all. That's exactly right. I mean, so that example of talking of national destiny, so Hempel, who wasn't in the Vienna circle, but he was in the Berlin circle, was an allied positivist group at the same time, uses, when he's giving this example of like meaningless things people might give as an explanation, as a pseudo explanation for events, he gives um, the historical destiny of a race as his mm -hmm. example of like a a pseudo proposition and, and it's mm -hmm. pointed right like it's it's he published it in 1943 it's it's aimed at things like that statement from heidegger and they're trying to draw attention to you know there are stakes to this it, it matters which way they go this was definitely an element for them and actually you mentioned the spinoza thing i've actually been reading more of spinoza recently he's so great i love spinoza he's great it's the best. Um, but uh one of the things you mentioned the the context he's thinking about the church well actually the the austro-fascists were very connected with the Catholic Church um, in mm -hmm. Austria. And so you'll often find a lot of kind of anti-clerical statements in Neurat and Carnap, especially Neurat. I had a couple of questions. If we could go back to verificationism, I was wondering if we could talk about that for a second. Um, not to get too in the weeds, but uh, you've, and I've known you to make jokes about this on Twitter, right? That it turns out that like there's a kind of problem involved with verificationism. The principle itself can't be verified, which mm -hmm. seems like a problem. Um, <laughs> but then also there's the sort of like Hume induction problem where if the claim is that meaningful sentences are those that can be verified or shown to be meaningfully true by empirical analysis, we run into a problem in as much as actually that doesn't seem to be possible in principle in, the strong, in as strong a way as we would like. Uh, we run into all these like problems of like the grounding of the epistemic legitimacy of the empirical sciences here. This is what like makes Popper go off on like falsification, which mm -hmm. I don't know if that's actually a, an advance. But 
I was wondering if you could speak to whether or not this is a problem for the positivists here and what they sort of tried to do about this. So it's actually remarkable for all of the attention this got in the later literature, especially from AJ Ayer and people responding to him. Mm-hmm. The Vienna Circle never worried about this at all. Like they, they didn't, they didn't care about the fact that the verification principle wasn't verifiable. And I think I can explain why. Um, so, but let me deal with the second point first about the sort of conclusive verification element and induction. Right. So I'm going to talk mostly about Carnap here. I think that's the more important problem. Yeah. Yeah, because. Carnap, I think, had the most sophisticated thought about this, so I'll just use his version. So when he was, his early work, um, he had this famous work called The Logical Construction of the World, the Alphabet, is often referred to. The way of cashing out these verificationist ideals there was to say it was kind of in principle possible that you could have a system, a constitutional system, he calls it, wherein you have sort of explicitly formulated concepts with a base concept just consisting of some very simple logical primitives and the sort of gestalt similarity, saying my current gestalt is similar to this other gestalt. You could could begin with just those elements and you could gradually construct more and more concepts until you could get a sort of adequate scientific description of the world. So he, he says, you know, I can start from there and I will show you the constructions such that you can start stating the ideas of advanced mathematics and contemporary physics. And they thought that in principle, it would be possible to do this, you know, he just did it that far and he thought in principle it would be possible to do this for anything. And so what verification means here is you'd be able to state rules for when you're allowed to like add a claim to the system of things Mm -hmm. you've accepted so far. And those rules would be in terms of like, you know, fundamentally, if you broke them down enough, like I'm in this kind of gestalt right now, you know, I, I, I probe the world in this way and I get this gestalt in response. And so it's not the, the problem of induction, you know, what fully confirmed means here is just, I'm in the conditions under which conventionally I've specified, I'm allowed to add the statement as it's confirmed to my world system. So it's not really running into the issue of full certainty. It's just like, these. I've just told you when I'm going to accept and when I'm going to reject the claim, and this is when I'm going to accept it. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you know, Stipulated conditions. Stipulated conditions, right? Yeah, if so, I could just jump, yeah. Jump in real quick because um, we read one of your articles on the logical positivist and race, and you brought up the idea of um, the relativized a priori, and yeah. you know, and so I I thought that this was interesting because what you know if I could just like try to translate what I understood as the relativized a priori is what goes on is basically you have to start from somewhere. And so you're trying to, you know, generate a body of knowledge that given this assumption or given uh, this sort of understanding, these things would follow and this makes sense. But I thought what was interesting here is the reason why it is okay to have this relativized a priori, which is different than a universal a priori, is, you know, it is judged on the basis of what you are also trying to accomplish, you know, what would be useful. And so in that article, you're talking about, you know, there might be good reasons to do a taxonomy of race in the world. You know, this Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, mean that, you know, race is relevant in all cases. And I, if I follow your argument, it doesn't even necessarily mean that race is real in some sort of ontological or metaphysical way. But it's, you know, about asking the question of what is it that I want my knowledge to do for me? 
what is it that I am trying to um, accomplish? And so what I thought was really sort of powerful in the logical positivist is they're really, you know, putting forward this issue of if our knowledge is meant to accomplish something, if it's a means to an end, and if, you know, say, you know, one of our chosen ends is something more socially democratic, more socialist, well, then it's actually really, really important that you understand how things work given that that is your goal. Yeah. And that, you yeah. know, metaphysics and abstract profundity actually will not get you the goods if it's something like, how does a fucking economy work? <laughs> Being isn't going to tell you that. Yeah, that knowledge so, gives you no leverage. Exactly. Yeah. And so I thought that that was really important because it seemed as if the reason why they go to sort of, you know, back to Gil's question, that maybe it, they didn't worry much about verifying the principle of verificationism because, you know, I wonder if there's a sort of pragmatism here, which is, well, mm-hmm. that, that's not useful for the thing we're trying to do. And I, you know, under what conditions would that be a useful question to ask? Right. No, exactly. So I think that they, ultimately, I think the explanation for why they didn't worry about the verification of verificationism is is the pragmatism in their view and the way it was cashed out. So I'll, I'll go into that now. So, yeah, so that was how Kleinhoff understood verification in the alphabet. Now, as he went on in life, he became more and more kind of open to conventionalism. So there was already the conventional aspect, which I just discussed. Neurat persuaded him that you didn't have to start with the perceived gestalt similarity. You could start with reports of physical objects in the world. And Neurat persuaded him that it'd be politically good to do that because that could connect it to materialism rather than any hint of idealism, which might be used by bourgeois obscurantists and so on. And so kind of in later editions would always say like, oh yeah, but you could use a material basis. And that'd be just, you know, that might be good for political reasons. Later on, as they came to sort of develop their views more, like, again, Speaking especially of Carnap, but he was very influential on the others. This one, this point for the record, actually, really wasn't consensus ontological positivists. This is Carnap in particular. The view of what verification is, is they have this idea of, as you said, the relativist, relativized a priori. According to that view, it's a kind of neo-Kantian view where, okay, Kant was right that we need a kind of schema, a conceptual schema in which we arrange the data of experience. But Kant sort of had it that this is just is transcendental there's one necessary one which which we share but for the logical positivists like it that was that's too metaphysical they just thought like well our languages divide the world in a certain way right like they they link some things together by being common classification concepts they permit some inferences and not others and so on and so the a priori element that conceptual schema is just given when you have a language which which divides the world up in one way rather than another and we get to choose what our languages are they're not just given we can make languages in fact Carnap was a big fan of esperanto which he thought would be in the socialist world state to come we don't speak esperanto um i was just reading in his intellectual autobiography he saw a performance of goethe's Iphigenia in esperanto yep. and got really excited about it yep no, like this is a big thing and for so his cool. part um, Neurat and actually um, someone who went on to become his wife, Marie Neurat, they worked a lot on pictorial languages, which they thought would help people who didn't have formal education understand complex social statistics, which they'd need to do when they're governing their own society in the in the coming socialist transition. And so like they were really invested, so they did like we, we just get to make the language up, and that's the thing we choose. And so you're not bound by anything. And how do you decide what language to use? Well, it's a tool. You should decide it does it help you do things or not. And so for them, verificationism is something like the following. It would be useful to adopt a language in which 
this verification feature is true. Like the claims you make can always be tested against empirical evidence. It'd be useful for scientific reasons. It helps us avoid pseudo problems. It helps us coordinate evidence and share knowledge between fields because we can like say, well, here's the kind of evidence to confirm this. Can you gather that kind of evidence and so on? And it would also help be useful for political reasons. It would prevent the kind of obscurantism. It would make it plain when people are making demands rather than making descriptions and so on. So it'd have this kind of democrat democratizing political purpose. And you can even do specific things. So you mentioned my work on the process on race. If I'm right, and I, it's kind of speculative, so I don't want to be too confident. But if I'm right, I think they actually just thought we should just get rid of the racial taxonomy. They thought it's, they granted that it could be used. Like it wasn't, mm -hmm. they didn't think it was incoherent. But they just thought the uses of it were bad. And so, you know, mm -hmm. you can just kind of choose. I don't want this conceptual scheme to be part of what I'm working with, so off it goes. And so they were sort of very sort of pragmatically oriented. And for that reason, the problem of verifying verification wasn't an issue for me. Like, we should choose to make the verification principle true. That's why. Uh, one one consequence of this, if I understood your argument in the, the essay on race properly, is that this question of racial taxonomy um, or whether or not like whether or not it is meaningful to use these categories or the specific way that you cash it out is in using racial explanations. Nothing in the sort of epistemological framework that they articulate decides for or against that usage, right? It's kind of an in, it's independent logically of these epistemic questions. Absolutely. And so what we then have, and I, th and so I was wondering if you think that the same goes for, so then if we end up being voluntaristic eliminativists about it, we say for the ends that we adopt in our desire to construct a certain kind of social or political order, we don't, we choose not to use this, these kinds of explanations. But then the question is why, why adopt that view of the social order or political order to, to which we want, that we want to build? And I was wondering if it has a similar structure in your mind to this question of socialism or uh, the socialist proletarian sort of movement. Because it sometimes seems as though it has a similar kind of relationship to me wherein, uh, you know, once we stipulate that, we're, that we'd like to build a social democratic order, a socialist dem democracy of some kind, you know, democratic ownership of the means of production, then we can, you know, fo what follows from that is a more or less coherent program of what we ought to do with our languages and what kinds of metaphysical uh, moves we want to rule out. But that also seems kind of like, again, an independent posit or uh, commitment. Right? What's the status of the commitment here? It doesn't seem like it follows from the logical analysis. And so what's the basis for this moral or political commitment uh, yeah, in one way or another? That's a great question. And I think it's, you know, where the... It's where the critical theorist critique, I think, really connects with something about the positivists. I, whether it's fair depends on who you think's right. But so you know, the, your complaint about the critical theorists, I think, is unfair. I'm not sure if we covered it. I can't remember. I'll say it again. Is you know, they as as Will said, they they often make out as if the positivists saying you just accept the world as it is broadly things like and they don't think that at all. In fact, they want to gain the knowledge which will help you change the world. They're well aware that this could be. There are, could be, there are people lying to you. It's not like that's kind of mm. empirically unconfirmable that no one ever lies or something. You know, there's deception. People can be wrong. People can be fooled. They could be bamboozled. It can just be difficult. We just don't know, et cetera. Right? So there was no kind of... That that attack they made on them was just unfair. It, it doesn't really connect with them. But this idea, though, that kind of they empty their notion of reason out such that they only really have instrumental reason mm. and then a kind of decisionism about what ends you adopt... Is I think correct. Um, I mean, I, I mean, this is controversial because I don't. I'm sure they wouldn't like to be put that way, but my sense is that when you get passages from them about like why be a socialist, 
I think Carnap is just kind of, well, you know, maybe you're a proletariat and then you have the interest of the proletariat, or maybe you're a capitalist and then you have capitalist interests. There's no good reason for a capitalist to be a socialist, but we're going to, you know, hopefully we'll win. And so there won't be capitalists and that'll, you know, that'll solve that problem. Um, <laughs> and so, like, I, you know, I just don't, I don't think they, they just saw this as an expression of proletarian interest. That's whose side they were on. And so there was a kind of like explicit decision, kind of like owned that about himself. Like, yep, it's just picking a side and that's the side I'm on. Neurat wasn't so, I don't know, grim. Neurat, I've got this quote from him where he says, you know, the concerns of positivist theorists like himself are men here on earth who free sorrow and pain and wish to be kind to each other. Happiness, friendship, and life as it is really lived on earth. These are our concern. Speculation concerns us only so far as it helps to shape life and to make it happy. You know, I just think, Nerf just didn't think it required that much defense that that's, <laughs> <laughs> that that's a good ethical vision. Right? He, just, he just thought like, why wouldn't you prefer that thing, right? Um, and so he, 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 on the other hand, he did seem to think there was a more substantial reason to adopt this. But I have to say, I'm not sure he really had the resources to defend that. Mm-hmm. He just thought it was obvious. Mm-hmm. Carnap kind of bit the bullet and it was just like, he thought it was just people who tell you that there's some deeper reason that it's like, you know, you have to do it this way. They're just lying to you. They're just trying, they're just masking the fact that they want you to do things a certain way. I'm going to be honest with you. I just prefer the socialist future and that's what I'm going for. Um, and Love so... It. From, Total yeah. ex- existentialist move. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Freedom, yeah. pause it, boom. And that's, and I think that was explicit. I mean, it says Carnap is a, was a big Nietzsche fan, right? This was explicit connection. He was, he was aware of that. And yeah, that, that was the move for him. So whether or not you think that's, you know, the one way of seeing that is that they've robbed reason of its true power and this decisionism is kind of an irrationalism and it just means that like, what this positive can allow for is a situation where you have this like intensely efficient technical machine in the sub- mm. in the hands of like people with like terrible goals, and that's that's like the worst of all worlds. Um, I mean, and I guess like the positive response would be like that's idealism, right? Like, there's no way of like having ideas so good bad people can't use them. Like, you just have to fight and win, and that's that. Like, you know. So I have a question about explanation, and I think it's related to the verifiability conversation. So I'm I'm a little less worried about arriving at some kind of certainty. And I'm going to try this out because metaphysics is not my strong suit, but I I want to ask what counts as something observable and like how you decide how to order it in such a way that creates an explanation. It seems to me that if you're talking about being able to verify things based on what you can observe then like you have to decide what's observable and like what Mm -hmm. unless I'm wrong about this the the realist objection to Carnap is like you have to posit some kind of mechanism which means that there's not everything you're talking about can be observable so the and and then how can you remain on this on the surface in some sense like don't you have to posit that there's a real thing there and the, and the example I thought of is, I think people here know I've been studying Anwar Sheikh's theory of capitalism, and he's a Marxian economist, and um, he thinks that it's very, very possible to revive the Marxian notion that what causes crisis is the rate of profit to fall mm-hmm. from capital. And this has been discredited by a lot of Marxists and neoclassical economists, obviously, but here he, he tells you in his lectures, like, I can show this to you empirically. I can show it to you. You can observe it. 
But then what you get in his charts is that you get the effects. Like you see every seven or eight years, the rate of profit starts to fall. And so, and I'm like, am I observing the rate of profit falling? I'm, I'm, I'm observing the effects of something that actually exists that's I'm not observing. And to me, whether or not there's something really there will depend on, like, so that tells you something about what you want to focus on, like what's good, adequate for your purposes. And it also tells you something about, like, why socialism? It's because this mechanism is here. And if we can appropriate it, take control of it, resist it, or whatever, then I've, again, I've got a, a lever I can push to push the world in my, the direction I, I want it to go. So it seems like, yeah, the, 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 the fact that there is like a there there seems important. No, it's a, it's a great question. And the, the evidence for that is, is actually what Carnap and uh, some of the other logical persons, like Kempel, who I mentioned earlier, spent most of their careers working on. Ah, so okay. <laughs> in short, so just, you know, Carnap has a reputation as being very hostile to metaphysics. This is because what people know him for is these like confrontations with, with Heidegger. But, you know, Heidegger was a particular person with a particular goal in mind, right? And kind of was very harsh to Heidegger on account of how he's a fascist and kind of thought that was bad. Actually, take. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, you know, I, no one can see me, but I just did a thumbs down, just like, no, no like, fascism. I, I, you know, I have a lot of job security, so I'm willing to just come here and say fascism is bad. Like, you know, like, wow, that's brilliant. Okay. We're, we're going to edit that first, out. Folks. We're going to edit that out, okay? Well, I, I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> we'll that also this edit was... the part where you want to cancel people for teaching Heidegger at universities. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I actually came on this podcast of continental philosophers to say that all continental philosophers should be fired. That is my opinion. That's true. So, um, That's... I'm, I'm way ahead of you by what, already not what having was a job. Great is like you know there was those friendly chuckles, but when I said that, everyone sort of grimaced. It was a bit too real. That's <laughs> 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 great fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to get oh, cancelled. What is it going to take? No, like, you know, well, that's you know, ruthless, Leo. Everyone should be fired. It just follows from all general principles. So, um, <laughs> yes. So, Carnap was actually, when he's not engaging in polemics against fascist apologists, he was, he's actually, it's the other way around, he's ultra permissive. So, nowadays, in analytic metaphysics, Carnap is very associated with what's called the easy ontology movement which is people who basically, you get to make any claims you want. And, and the reason for this is, when you think about sort of the inner logic of, the of their position, Vedita, I'm going to add in a second, basically, anything you could ever get evidence for is going to be a thing they're going to be fine if you say. Um, because that's the nature of the view, especially since in, in later years, Carnap sort of softened the, the principle of verificationism to be something like, claims have to be such that you can specify what evidence you could gather within the standards of evidence your field uses that would make your probability of it being true go up or down accordingly. So it just has to have like some connection to a thing which you can gather evidence for by whatever standards you think of evidence. You get the field gets to decide what the observables are in their field and how they how they're to be gathered. And you just need to specify like, okay, when I see this thing, you know, here's how it changes my belief in that thing. You can tell me that and you can say whatever you want. Why doesn't desire or preference then fall under one of those things that we can uh, that you know that we can observe and that we can make claims about, right? Because the whole well, we the whole split oh but the whole split between the descriptive and the normative part seems to be based on this view of preferences as, like you said, decisionistic, irrational. Uh, and so we put those aside theoretically, the preferences and the desires, and then we, and then we you know, focus our theoretical attention on, I don't know, the thing desired. Uh, no, 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 we, we, we can do both. I mean, okay. so 
we we can talk. We, one thing we can theorize about desire because we can come up with ways of giving evidence for people desire things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that mysterious, right? Like I can just tell you I like chocolate, right? It's, it's not. Um, and for another thing, they do you what like they, chocolate? Uh, you don't get a physique like mine if you don't like chocolate. I like chocolate, <laughs> right? Like, so. Um, I just wanted to check. I don't have access to your inner mental states, so uh, okay. <laughs> now, now I've got proof. So I'll, I'll sort of jump up and down and wiggle my belly, and you'll see. Um, but like, so, but what they were keen to stress was a kind of decept. Like, so I can talk about here's what my desires are, and you can talk about here's what your desires are, and we can talk about each other's desires and so on. All of that's fine. What I shouldn't do is mask my desire by claiming it as a descriptive fact about the world. So I, I can say. I mean, there is a script mm. fact, which is that I desire it. Mm-hmm. But I shouldn't sort of say it's intrinsically desirable and you should give nice. it to me. I, I see. Like, that's that's the thing they want to resist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the thing they're trying to... Yeah. So in general then... Um, so yeah, it's just like the, the role desire should play in your theorizing. Mm-hmm. In general, what they said then about the kind of things Lydia uh, was talking about is what one should do is try and make... You know, what they want to do is make those claims seriously. It's like, if you want to say there's a mechanism underlying which links together this thing and this thing... That's great, but don't just say it. Let's take this thing seriously. Let's have a let's like say explicitly, like how we think that mechanism operates, and in particular, what kind of signs of that mechanism could exist, and in particular, I guess, um, what kind of things can we manipulate in the world which would give us access to like that mechanism? Because usually, the way to get things experimentally is to manipulate something and see what happens, and that's and that's what you want, right? If we, if we talk about things which are causing economic crisis, we want to know not just. We don't just posit it, right? That's just words. That was just saying something. What we want is to have access to it, to have a means of seeing when it's present, mm-hmm. and in the best case, being able to pull the levers ourselves. And so they they were fine about that. They just called. They did a lot of theorizing about like, okay, so you know, because there's a lot of technical work about like what what things have to be to count as evidence in the right kind of way and so on. And they spent a lot of their careers working on just that. Like, how can I take apparently unobservable background things and relate them to what we can observe, what we can manipulate, what we can interact with in a sort of in our environment in a sort of everyday sense, and and render those things explicable in those terms because that's what we want from them. So yeah, does does that answer your question, Lillian? Yeah, no, it does. I that clarifies the relationship between those two things, the observable and the in- unobservable. And I think maybe that's mischaracterized in a lot of literature about this. Like I think people just assume that when we're talking about the, the surface, like the way they emphasize sort of everything is on the surface. You know, you're either able to observe it, you're able to verify it or no. I think it's maybe coming full circle. That's a deceptively superficial way of talking <laughs> about things. Yeah. What I find really striking, and I don't know if it's a tension in logical positivism per se, but on the one hand, it feels like there's this like, there's this deep humility in, in in the project, you know, especially if we're talking about the relativized a priori, it's not positing this idea that you know truth with a grand capital T is just right there. You just have to look at it. You know, clearly there there's this understanding of well, I have to figure out well what are the types of problems I'm trying to solve, and then I have to actually figure out the types of mechanisms that would show that I am in fact you know have evidence that I am solving this problem, or I don't. Like, I think that's something that's probably really important mm-hmm. about, you know, the detailing the mechanisms because that allows other people to say, I think you're wrong. I think you you actually don't have it right. On the other hand, there strikes me that there's this, you know, deep optimism 
that if we could understand, if we could get at the levers, we really, you know, I won't go so far as to say that it seems like you can get from Carnap or Norat, you know, we'd be able to eliminate the problem of unintended consequences. But I do, um, you know, uh, feel this deep sense, and especially with Norat, and I, I am very sympathetic to this, the idea that if we could democratize knowledge by, you know, making clear the mechanisms for evidence that other people could analyze and participate in, you wouldn't necessarily have to be a quote-unquote specialist. This is about almost you know, making the knowledge project more democratic. We could do more things given the types of ends that, that we want to accomplish. And I was wondering, do you, is that attention, the, the humility, yet the optimism of what reason could accomplish? Um, whether it's attention or not, it's an interesting question. I'm going to think about that as I, as I respond to some of what you said, and maybe we'll clarify. I'm not sure. Is the is the honest answer? So they seem um, like two sides of the same thing, don't they? I don't mm -hmm. see the tension here. Okay, right. Like I mean, in in as much as it seems as though like the only thing that we could control is that which we could control for, right? Okay. In the project of in the project of constituting collective uh, knowledge uh, together, like this is the only the only grounds for not being optimistic about this would be to say that like well there are things that we can't control for, but then what? would be the point of worrying about that, maybe in a sense. Okay, okay. Right? Like this is, I, the humility is, it's very Kantian in a way, right? Like it has to do with like recognizing that there are limits and only that which is like manipulable within an experimental scene is what can be meaningfully known or, and at the same time, manipulated, right? This is, the, these okay. go hand in hand, I think. I don't yeah. know if, if you so, agree with that, Liam. I do agree with that. And in fact, I just realized, um, so there's a passage in the Alphabet towards the end where, Carnap is discussing the sense in which they think all questions can be answered. Why is that? Because they think anything which is a sensible question is a something which, at least in principle, we could gather evidence for. It. That's just what it means if you sign up to verificationism. And they say, that, you know, is there something arrogant about this? Is, is that kind of like presuming more of our powers than we, we can really be said to have? And he's discussing in particular people who in his day critique rationalism. Rationalism, as they see, is this kind of arrogance. And he says, after all, this word rationalism is meant not so much for those positions like ours, which give to reason, i.e. conceptual understanding, a leading role within the field of knowledge, but rather it is applied to those persuasions which wish to bestow a position upon it with respect to life as a whole. But such a tendency is found neither in the theory in this book in general, nor in the notion that conceptual knowledge is unlimited. The proud thesis that no question is in principle unsolvable for science agrees very well with the humble insight that even after all questions have been answered, the problem which life poses for us has not yet been solved. The task of cognition is a definite, well-circumscribed, important task in life, and it can certainly be, de be demanded that mankind should shape the aspect of life which can be shaped with the aid of knowledge by a determined application of this knowledge, that is, by using the methods of science. Even if modern movements frequently underestimate the importance of science for life, we do not wish to fall into the opposite error. Rather, we wish to admit clearly to ourselves who engage in scientific work that the mastery of life requires the effort of all our various powers. We should be wary of the short-sighted belief that the demands of life can all be met with the power of conceptual thinking alone. And I think that, so this is element in Carnap where it's, that's getting at some of the decisionism in Carnap, but like this is element where they want to say like, yes, um, as far as we can, we should like, we, we can gain knowledge, we can put it to our use in shaping our life for the better. But at, that wouldn't resolve everything. And there's a lot of things which I think should be properly open mm. to this kind of democratic thing. And they also thought there should be much more involvement between even the technical sort of bit where you're trying to work out just, you know, 
what are the mechanisms underlying nature. You know, as I said, uh, Moira actually spent most of his career on public information work. And Carnap actually took part in, in Red Vienna in the adult education movement. So, they, you know, they, they really thought that you could bring people into the technical side too. But even given that, they thought the technical side, there's a sort of humidity to like, that wouldn't solve what you're going to do. That falls out with the, sort of the decisionist aspects. And Yeah, I think that that humility is on full display too. And that you sent us an article um, about uh, Bilston, a town in the, a town in the yeah. UK that Otto Neurath actually played a role in the planning of because he was brought in as a, quote, happiness consultant. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what I found so interesting about that is that, and your reference here to their rejection of arrogant rationalism um, mm-hmm. is the contrast between the way he went about trying to help the development, the redevelopment of um, slums by actually engaging with the desires yep. and the, you know, the kind of stated aims of the people that were going to be inhabiting the the houses and the, and the buildings that were going to be redeveloped. Whereas you had like on the French scene and also outside of uh, France, the kind of Le Corbusier inspired, very arrogant rationalism, which thought yep. that they could dictate Right, the 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 most desirable conditions that human beings should live in, and it looks like you know, especially for the poor, that it's a kind of apartment block that doesn't require any kind of interchange with any kind of adjacent communities. It's isolated, etc. And of course, we know you know historically now that that was actually just a better way to govern marginalized populations. It wasn't it wasn't a way to make anybody any anybody happier. And so that's where that humility, right, that philosophical commitment to that humility has really really significant kind of consequences. Oh yeah, no doubt. In fact, there's actually a really charming story which Norat would tell himself. So before working in the UK on that kind of project, he also worked on the... So at the end of World War One, there were a lot of refugees came into Vienna because the economy collapsed and they were looking for work. And so there was this need to suddenly house much more people in Red Vienna. And Murat gained a lot of experience there working on those projects with people. And at one point, he, told a story, he tells a story of how he was... Um, he, there were complaints being made about some resident because they were, they were a farmer, they brought their their animals with them and they were having a bunch of pigs sleep in their bath and the pigs were the messy creatures and were causing problems because of course the the bath area was communal and so <laughs> oh, right um and and the call was to punish this person like the, you know you're meant to go down there and remove their access but Noirat went down and just spoke with them so like well, what's going on? why have you got pigs in this bath <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, these are good questions what a match <laughs> and it turned out that what was going on is the state was also providing styes, like you know, places to keep animals, but they um, the heating wasn't working. So if you left your animals in there overnight in winter, they died of the cold. And so Nyrat said the whole problem resolved by talking to him and then going and buying a battery for the radiator, and that was it. And and, and he used that story to illustrate, you know, his general. He just had this sense that like people are sensible people have like reasonable ways of interacting with the world and if only they were given the chance to like if only they were given the chance to work out their problems together and solve them in a sensible way we could and it's just kind of bad features of our society which prevent that from happening and so that was mm-hmm. what that that's what he used that for and it, it speaks to that like that faith that people could be involved in in governing our lives together and it would it would go better I think that's really beautiful, and I, you know, I, I, I kind of want to like you know, bring it back full circle. You know, everyone in this group, you know, dunking on Heidegger's like our, 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 our second date. <laughs> <laughs> Smart and, bread and know, butter, baby. 
like yeah, you know, uh, you have you know the sexy murder poet. I believe that that is you know, you know your phrase <laughs> and all of that. And it can sexy seem like poet, wait, who basic... said sexy murder poet? Liam or Gil? Oh, yeah, yeah, that, I... is, that is um, a a Brightian neologism, as it yeah, were. So it's actually part of the eternal contrast. There's sexy murder poets and basically pleasant bureaucrats. Those are the <laughs> yes. two types of people. This is the the eternal struggle, and neither side will ever win. All yep. of that type of stuff. But it can seem like that this is just about pettiness, but no, it's not just about that. It's about actually fundamentally how you orient yourself and communicate to other people mm -hmm. what you think that they ought to be called into. If you are committed to making your language impenetrable and when someone calls you on that, you invoke some abstract metaphysical idea of, well, there's no other way you could possibly understand this thing if you don't adopt this highly specific language that seems to be almost specifically meant to alienate you because that normal way you're thinking isn't going to cut it. It's lazy it's or something like that. Vulgar. Well, there is, it's vulgar. vulgar. It, there is a presupposition that is already built into how you engage with other people. And so what I really found you know, compelling about this is no matter like what type of technical work the four of us are doing in all, all here, we are all adhere to this principle. Of we want to be able to translate, explain what we're saying, because we assume someone else could understand it. Mm -hmm. And so what I, I like here is that it's not about, you know, one, either presupposing that, you know, you already have to be playing my game in order to understand. But two, it's also saying well, maybe we have to constantly rethink things. We actually have to find out what's going on and make the argument again and find out what other people are thinking, what they're feeling. You know, this is, I mean, it's a, it's a great point and there's a, there's a way of viewing the process. I don't think they ever put it this way themselves, but it's a reasonable read on what, a lot of what they did that like a lot of the problem with metaphysics for them is it's kind of like absolutizing what is really a local cultural contingency hmm. so it's like this is how people in your community mm -hmm. express what is sort of effectively meaningful to them what's what's important to them and that's fine like but like just in the same way that you shouldn't insist that our culture's music is the only real music there's no reason because you know because it's, it's not a thing about the world which could be true or false where you might contradict each other it's just a, an expression of your effective relation to your to your life and the world around you and so it's kind of uh, sort of cultural imperialism in some sense to insist on your metaphysical vocabulary being the only acceptable one. That That's there in them. However, this is to get into some of the critiques, or at least I think to critique the way analytic philosophy developed from this. The positivists are, of course, using highly technical language, right? These are PhD physicists and mathematicians yeah. using the most advanced technical tools of their day. Now, they paired this with a, with a sincere commitment to public education. That civil rights organization um, Carnap was a part of had like two platforms, which was pacifism, opposition to the Vietnam War, and especially drafting black people, and education, education for poor black people in California, in LA in particular. So Carnap throughout his life was committed to like, you know, people, more people should have access to this knowledge, they should be brought in and it's fine. But on the whole, Positivism and philosophy gets separated from that kind of social basis, that commitment to public outreach, that commitment mm. to explaining ourselves, making it clear. And yes, I guess in principle, you can explain to people, it's, you know, if this insistence on intersubjectively shared things and you can get textbooks and quantum mechanics and whatever, you can. But de facto, if you're using the highly technical language of contemporary analytic metaphysics, that's, you know, no less inaccessible to someone than the highly technical language of any any continental school right and the analytic philosophers have a have a habit of being sort of smug about the the clarity of analytic philosophy compared to 
content of philosophy. And in at least this important sense in which the positive sort of clarity, which is like genuinely making things available for like public deliberation and allowing people to come in and understand the forces affecting their life. And hopefully, I mean, you know, Noirat worked on the theory of social planning, right? On like how we could use our information collectively to plan for our own happiness under a democratic society. Um, that's that's what they want to get out of this in the end. And the contemporary analytic philosophy is you know, it, it's it's no more in a position to do that than Heidegger was. Right? It's, so there's something important gets lost when it gets separated from the social mission. So McCarthy, I think, there's a sense which, you know, I, I say on Twitter, I'm, I said there's a sense which too many times. There are only so many senses in the world, I'm using them up. Um, <laughs> like, I say I'm the last positivist, but, and I complain about that, because I like complaining, but I actually do think, shorn of the connection to a social mission, positivism, you know, what's the point of developing tools no one can ever use? And there's a worry that it can become sterile in that way if sufficiently crushed by the FBI. And so I think it lost some of its attraction for, like, good reason. Like, you shouldn't be attracted to making tools that whatever you use. So, I, so yeah, I, I don't think we should be too laudatory here. It's, it's maybe not their fault, but nonetheless, that's how things went. Well, we're starting from we're starting from a position of total dismissal. So some lauding, okay. I think some some you know some laudatory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you it's know, good. Let me do that because <laughs> you know I could have easily made the joke. I've read some you know current you know contemporary analytic philosophy, and I thought in my head this is supposed to be clarity. Yeah, this is another language game, but that's yeah. not what we're doing here. Well, notice that the yeah. the lack of clarity is coincident with the lack of political radicalism. Those things are not. I don't think. Um, yeah, no, that's this not is, an arbitrary ooh, connection. Bu bourgeois. What did they? Call, he called it squib-like nature of bourgeois thinking. Oh, I, I love that. You <laughs> love yeah, that. Yeah. What is it? I think it was. Was it Carnap or? Yeah, he's like. There's a squib-like nature, and I looked that up, and it's kind of like a, a kind of dynamite. Like it kind of explodes and goes to, in different directions, which is how he imagines. Um, this kind of mystifying character of, of metaphysics, like it's he and Noirat describe it as like moving you away from thinking about anything, but like focusing on the real institutions and behavior of groups, like the function of, of bourgeois thought is to make you basically do anything aside yeah. from doing that. And that's what makes it a, a squib. Yeah, this is why they're drawn to Marxism, like right? Where bourgeois yeah. thinking just goes from thing to thing. It, it values accumulating knowledge as something that's somehow inherently good. Uh, whereas Marxism, it's presented sometimes as being vulgar, right? As reducing everything down to class mm -hmm. struggle. But Neurat, at least in that Epicureanism piece that you sent us, uh, Neurat is very clear that that's Marxism's power. It focuses it on a set of problems. And so it does it, you know, when it is doing its kind of knowledge production and knowledge formulation within a very delimited set of problems and a specific set of goals, it actually becomes even better. And here's the great point, right? It becomes even better scientific work than the just kind of bourgeois dabbling here and there with whatever happens to pique their interest that day. I mean, what's crazy about thinking about this issue of narrowness. So he does, I, I actually, of course I thought about this when what was being described was how people feel very constrained and restricted by the kinds of reductions that the positivists do. And people get very like uneasy when they feel like they have to give up something that has 
um, grandeur or, or dignity so mm. they, they don't like being kind of like forced to focus yeah. on, on a, a small thing. <laughs> That's and that wonderful passage in Carnap, right? It's where he yes. says that um, Marxism has shown that rather than being moved by beautiful spiritual ideals, we're driven by material interests. And Freud has shown that rather than um, having, you know, deep intellectual minds, we're moved by our darkest impulses, the, our nether yes. regions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, he describes the emotional resistance to the thesis of, yeah. of physicalism. But I also, ha I obviously thought there was an analogy to, like, the arguments of materialism in general that kind yeah. of once whether it's described as a logical empiricism or whatever, I, I feel like there's similarity with the resistance to any of those positions where you don't want to give up things that are tied to your sense of dignity. Mm. And it, it reminded me of C.S. Lewis's essay on living in an atomic age where he argues against naturalism where he's like if you really believe that the love you feel for a woman is just like her the brain chemistry like life has no meaning look how ugly this is and then we recoil from naturalism because it seems to take something away from us and mm. I don't know what I think about naturalism but that it, it struck me that this kind of emotional connection to something much more mysterious is a part of the rejection of whether it's empiricism or physicalism mm. or material historical materialism. You know, and you sometimes like hear this critique of what's what I think is you know, pejoratively called the sort of Marxist utopianism, which is like you know, you know, but wants us also what what's left? What we're just fucking happy. Like, you know, well, who would want that? Where's the strife? Where is that, you know, that essential negativity, which, you know, it, it strikes me, one, it is not as if, you know, that would go away. And two, it's a way of sort of almost, you know, fetishizing this, uh, this notion of um, there being something deeper to life, that yeah. there couldn't mm -hmm. actually Strike. Just be this. And I don't mean just in a pejorative way that they're, you know, this is complex enough. And so I thought, you know, yeah, that's what, you know, kind of yeah. popped into my head. Hmm. No, there's a lot, there's a lot to say on this. Um, so I was just reminded me of when I first read Brave New World and someone had to like tell me it was meant mm. to be a dystopia. So I was like, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the world of like no poverty, <laughs> drugs all the time, and orgies—that's the bad yeah, world. Right? Like, so <laughs> <laughs> you were supposed. This was supposed to ward me off. Oh yeah, like, have um, you? And it's cause, yeah. Um, have you anyway, seen Twenty Twenty? Like <laughs> utopian social planner Aldous Huxley. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the thing about the, the logical process relation to this kind of thing is like, yeah, they were well aware that it does generate that kind of emotional resistance for these kind of reasons. I mean, so you mentioned a connection to materialism, but, you know, in, in the manifesto, Carnap was one of the authors of that, and they say they think of physicalism as just materialism, but, you know, mm -hmm. spruced up a bit. So that that's that, that that's the connection they're making too. You know, there was already that quote I already read from earlier from from Neurat about it's, it's life here on earth of people as they are who wish to be kind and be friends and so on like that's what we're concerned with they do want to stress like the this world the nature of it and there's this other line from Carnap uh, where he says you know we too being the positivists have emotional needs in philosophy but they are filled by clarity of concepts precision of methods responsible theses and achievement through cooperation in which each individual plays their part and you know they, they think that it can it can be inspiring it can be beautiful to like mm 
work in this kind of collective way towards a goal we share and a goal which they think is ultimately felicity, like the well-being of, mm. of all, like the taking democratic control of our lives and using it for our own good. They think that human flourishing. Human flourishing. Epic this is this mm-hmm. is where he links it to the ancients. And you know, and, and they were actually they were also involved in artistic movements. So there was a strong connection between like Bauhaus architecture mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, urban and design with the logical positivists. And again they thought there was something kind of showing something which is meant to be sort of functional and which is meant to like enable people to design their own spaces in lots of ways that was an emphasis on Bauhaus could at the same time be like aesthetic and beautiful and moving and it that was important to them and that was that was the connection they saw there and so they were aware of this but they they thought it was overcomable that like there was a there is a a grandeur to this view of life and they hoped that people be induced to share it well Thank you, uh, Professor Bright, for coming on. That about does it for us today. Um, uh, Excuse me. Hold on. on. Professor Bright, OBE. OBE. And we are definitely not going to edit that out. That was supposed to be the sign-off, but we can't let the OBE not be there. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I look forward to you getting that award. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks on Friday. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. And if you like what we are doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash left of philosophy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Liam. Thanks so much, Liam. Bye-bye. Bye.